Well, this is the last week of our Genesis uh, First Things series. We're looking at Genesis 3. And a lot about responsibility versus irresponsibility. And it reminded me when I was a kid, and my parents were both working over the summer, um, we would be home, the three of us. My brother's five years older, so he would watch us. And while they were gone for the day, they would leave a list of things we had to do, right? Like chores and stuff like that. You know, scrub the toilet, mop the floor, vacuum, whatever. And um, now, the rest of the day, we lived as if we were orphans. We just lived as if my parents didn't exist. We, were, we just didn't even bother looking at the list. Like, what list? Who, who are mom and dad? Who are these people? We don't remember them. And then the moment that, until the garage door opened, then we got motivated, right? And we started scrambling around, throwing things in closets and cleaning up. And I made dang sure my mother was the first, I was the first person she saw with a mop in my hand so that she knew I was responsible and not like those other two heathens and prodigals, but that I was a good boy, right? And I remember one time they asked us to mop the floor, and, we, and when they came home, we mopped the floor with about a quarter inch of water on the f- kitchen floor, and when they opened, the, it was like a sitcom, when they opened the door, the three of us are on the ground with soap and water all over us, we're literally sliding like penguins across the kitchen floor, and then we just pointed at each other, like they did, it's their fault. It was like that meme from Sp- like the uh, Spider-Man meme, where they're all pointing at each other, we were like that, we were like, it's, their, it's his fault, it's her fault, not mine. They did it. You know, it's easy to pass the buck. I don't know what the opposite of passing the buck is. Is it receiving the buck? I don't know. But responsibility versus irresponsibility. Being irresponsible is not a victimless crime. Someone has to eventually pay for the irresponsibility. Someone has to pick up the slack. Because, re- because responsibility, it's a big deal. It's a community thing. It's a corporate thing. It's If someone has the attitude that says, I can just act irresponsibly and I don't care about the ramifications for what I've done, it's my right to do that, I have the freedom to create chaos and be irresponsible, that does not work in a relationship, does it? That does not work in a family, does it? That doesn't work in a nation, does it? Or in a business, no. Assigning blame because of you're irresponsible, it's not individual. Now it involves other people, right? It's corporate. It's bigger than just you, because someone has to pay the bill for someone else's irresponsibility. Now, it's easy to talk about those other irresponsible people out there. It's a long air quote, sorry. But those other irresponsible people that aren't in the room today, but I want to talk about you and me, because that's all who's here today, or those at home. Because there's something within all of us, and we'll look at this, that, that we want to shirk responsibility. There's something within us that's there, and and instead to cast blame. And it's within all of us. We've all done it. We'll probably do it again. But if you're a Christian, you can't do that. Because ultimately, we aren't accountable to our mommies or our daddies or our jobs or our president or our government or anything like that. You're ultimately accountable to a heavenly father. And if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, we get a picture of where originally we were responsible And we were perfect at it, human beings. And God entrusted us with stuff to do. Genesis 1.27, so he created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Before the Ten Commandments, before the law, before all these things happened, before Jesus was born, all of that, God created people to be responsible, to be able, response-ability, to be able to 
respond rightly. You know, have you ever had to reset your phone or a computer or a TV or something like that, right? You reset it to the factory settings, and it's a pain because you need to need to go back and redo your apps and all that sort of stuff and re-download contacts and all that stuff. You know, in many ways, the, the default setting, and yes, it is pronounced default because we're from the South, not default. <laughs> default. I live near a town called Advance. Not advance, advance. Because responsibility was our default setting at the very, very beginning. And God said it was good. It was actually very, very good. I mean, think about that. Our original design before the fall was perfect responsibility. We were never irresponsible. Listen to verse 28. God blessed these man and woman and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. In other words, God says to Adam and Eve, have a bunch of babies. Cover the earth. Be responsible for all of this I've given you. Take care of it. Then one day, it'll, it'll continually be good. Except I have one rule, just one rule. So don't break that one rule. But everything else, you're responsible for it. And it's good. And then the next verse, God said, I'll provide for you all everything that you need. I'll give you all the food that you need. I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. It will be yours for food. God has given us responsibility to subdue the earth, to take care of it, to be responsible in our perfect state. God made us that way. And that's why today, people, if you're religious or not, are still, you're still the happiest when you're responsible for something. Think about it. Have you ever met a happy, irresponsible person? Have you? Think about, think them through your, your mind right now. Rolodex. <laughs> Don't say their names. Irresponsible people you've met. Are they happy? No. We were created to be responsible and care for things in our lives. That's why when you're given a responsibility and you do it well, you feel good. Because work and responsibility is a spiritual act. It's connected to the essence of who we are. You can't deny our design. So before the fall, our d default setting was responsibility. Now after the fall, not so much. Now our default setting is fault finding. It's passing the buck. It's blame. It's now we have to learn how to be responsible, right? We have to figure it out. We have to have people role models help us. And we certainly can, can't we? Of course we can learn how to be responsible. We can learn how to learn from other people and, and be better and grow, but it doesn't come naturally to us. Responsibility is not our native tongue. It's the opposite of how we were made to be. So in Genesis 1 and 2, as we've said, the story of creation doesn't go well after that part. In Genesis 3, they, Adam and Eve get tempted. They both sin. They throw off their accountability to God. They are, they are aware of their nakedness, and they feel shame They've never felt this before. I can't even imagine what that is. But they've never felt shame. They've never felt fear. This is the first time they've ever felt that in their whole existence. And all of a sudden, they're confused and they're scared. And they feel this new thing they've never felt before. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
You know, there are people that probably seem to think that you can hide from God. Even if you don't believe in God, you seem to think, I'll be fine. I can, I can, even if God exists, I don't really care. Obviously, you can't hide from God. One day, you and I, you'll be face to face with your creator. That's undeniable, every human being that walks the face of the earth today. You can't hide from God. And ultimately, you really shouldn't want to, right? You really should not want to hide from God. You should want to come willingly toward God. But notice how God is not, he's, he's seeking them here, isn't he? He's not looking there to find fault with them. He's not trying to chastise or necessarily even to judge. But he is seeking them, isn't he? Now, this is grace. This is the grace of God already at work on the human condition. He started that day and he's never stopped. God, of course, knew what they did. He knew where they were, but he asked questions that they needed to hear. And Jesus does this, doesn't he? If you read the Bible, he asks really good questions because he knows the answer. He just wants to see if you know the answer because God knows we have to choose for ourselves. God's not going to make up our minds for us, but he'll ask really, really good questions. So when God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? He's really asking them, why are you? Why are you where you are? Have you thought about that? God doesn't need the information, but he's asking the question for their sake. And he may ask you questions sometimes or provoke or shape or chase you and pursue you in a way that is for your good always to help you think about something differently than you thought about before. He's causing them to examine their motive. Why are we doing what we're doing? And this is good news that God does this because if you belong to Jesus or even if you don't, Jesus will not leave you alone. You know that's true? He will never stop pursuing you. He will never let you go. He will continue to pursue you because God is love, right? This will be saying in that beautiful song. I love worship for lots of reasons. One is that it reminds us what's true, you know? And you just get washed over in what's ultimately true. And what's true is that God is love and he will continually pursue you even in your sin even when you don't know what you don't know, he will pursue you. So in verse 10, Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, God, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So as I said, fear has entered their lives. Shame has entered the chat, if you will. And so they hid themselves. What is this new feeling we feel? I don't know. But we're supposed to do this, I think. And I don't like how I look. And oh, I have a wrinkle or whatever. And oh, I've got a little roll here or whatever. Ah, I don't want anybody to see me anymore. And God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And just these few, this little dialogue, we learn so much about human nature, don't we? We learn so much about blame and shame and the origin of it and how it's not our original design. You know, so God asked him, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? Now, what does Adam say? Does he say, yes, Lord, it was the way. I will take full responsibility. I broke the rule. I will lay down my life for my wife and so that she may live. We made a vow for death until death do us part. So yes, it's my fault, God. Is that what Adam does? No. He essentially says, it's that woman you gave me that caused me the problem. So I'm going to throw her under the bus 
It's her fault. She did it. I didn't do it. She did it. He essentially says, you gave her to me. So the man replies, it was the woman who gave me the fruit and I ate it. So God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. Blame stems from irresponsibility. We can have responsibility that God wants us to, but now we're in a different default setting that fault finding is a result of the fall. To be a mocker, a slanderer, someone that's always looking for an angle, always looking to tear down, always looking to blame, always looking to find an accusation to throw. It's all a result of sin. But there's such good news, even in the midst of that, right? That even in the midst of this life, that God doesn't let us, he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't let us leave us in that place. When the Holy Spirit directs our lives, when he changes us, when we become new creations, when we become temples of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus and have a new nature from heaven, you don't live like that anymore, do you? You seek to build others up and not tear down. When you become aware of someone else's fault, you you feel more prone to pray for that person than to criticize. At least you should, so that you can intercede in love for that person. You see this reflected throughout the New Testament where James writes something like, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard it at every wedding you've ever been to. Love is what? Patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of... Mmm. Do you know someone who's really good at keeping a record of wrongs? You know that person that's like, I remember what you said in 1998. You're keeping a list. You know, that's an exhausting way to live your life. It's spiritually destructive. It's poison to your soul, if that's how you live. There's people that don't forgive or forget. So the man passes the buck to the woman. The woman passes the buck to the serpent. All three are essentially blaming God for the problem. All three of them are guilty, and all three eventually do get a judgment. Yes, God is a God of mercy, he's a God of grace, he's a God of love. But that's not an entirely biblical picture, right? God is a God also of wrath. He's a God of justice, he's a God of judgment. He's a God who's perfect in all of his decisions. And so that's what happens later on in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because sin and holiness can't coexist anymore. I don't think it was God's desire, but sin and holiness can't coexist anymore. So so God cares for them. He gives them clothes. He gives them the ability to have food. He sets them on their way. He puts a cherubim, which is a huge angel with a flaming sword, to guard the way back in Eden. Because why? Because it's a place of perfection. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. But of course, God was already preparing a way to make a way for us to get back to that place, which he knew that he would be sending his son to the earth. But now we live in a world where responsibility is not our default setting. You know, you've done this before, and I have too, and you've heard about it when someone says, I take full responsibility for what happened, right? I own it. And this is always seen as noble, as it should be, right? Because it's our original design. It's how we were made in the very beginning. And it seems novel now in the world because it's not our origi- and how we're currently wired on this earth. And I've heard people, we've heard a lot over our lives in church, that yes, we're born into a world of sin. We've all heard this. It's core Christian theology and doctrine. 
It's why we blame other people. It's why we have sin and suffering and death, and yes, natural and supernatural evil on the face of the earth. That's why death exists. That's why we have this thing called shame, because like Adam and Eve, shame points to the breaking of a moral law, and if there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. But I'll always like to say this to people, that maybe you're not a religious person at all. You have zero understanding about any of this, and it just sounds like a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo to you. It just sounds like, I don't think it's true. Like, you just, you just write it off. There's plenty of people out there like that. Like, sin is just made up. You just, like, I can't even fully understand it. Let me, let me say something to you. Sin blinds you to the reality of sin. It's pretty crazy to think about The work of sin covers up even that we are sinners at all. Core United Methodist doctrine, if you read the front of your United Methodist hymnal and read the articles of religion, if you have free time, I recommend you take that up someday. It's really good, actually. And one thing says is that the grace of God, apart from the grace of God, we can't even know that we're sinners. Oswald Chambers said this, that knowledge of what sin is is an inverse to its presence. He explains, Only as sin leaves do you realize what it is. When it's present, you don't realize it because the nature of sin is that it destroys the capacity to know your sin. You see this evidence in Genesis 3. What does Eve say back to God? God, it was the serpent who, what? Deceived me. And he did. He tricked her. But she gave in. He deceived me. I didn't even know I was sinning. I didn't know I could sin. If you get deceived, how do you know it? You don't. That's the very nature of deception. It's only the grace of God at work within you that one, you become aware of your sin, two, of your awareness for forgiveness, that's the grace of God at work in your life, and three, that you're even in church right now, right? Or that you even want to read a Bible or pray a prayer. That's the grace of God at work in you, because left in our default setting, we are dead to sin. We are dead to sin. That's why when, that's why we die. Sin brought death to the world, but repentance is a gift of God, is grace at work within us, that God knows that sin blinds us to the even the knowledge of sin. So if you're that kind of person that goes, I'm not a Christian, it's stupid, you're a bunch of hypocrites. So for one, I go, come join the club, we got plenty of room because we're all hypocrites in some regard, none of us are perfect. But secondly, God doesn't want to leave you blinded to your sin. He wants you to become aware of it so that you can know what remedy you need. And there's only one remedy. It is a relationship with Jesus. It is receiving him as Savior and Lord. God has started to pursue Adam and Eve on that day to this very day. He does not want us to stay in that place of shame and guilt and blame and irresponsibility hiding in the darkness. So anyone with ears to hear, let them hear. Over the years, I have done some marriage counseling with couples. I'm not a licensed counselor or anything but I have talked with people, couples that are having hard times. And one thing I've learned from individuals is that it's always a two-way street, right? When you have a problem, problem with marriage, people tend to think it's what? It's the other person, right? They're the one. They're the problem, not me. No, 
It's all, always only them. There's always two stories. There's always two stories. It takes two to tango. But there's always seems to be one party that's really good at blaming more than the other. That's really unwilling to even look within to ask themselves, have I made a mistake? Did my words cause a problem? Now, when I've talked to people that have gone through divorce care, that's what that curriculum does, is that it, sh- it helps you work through that pain. It's very painful, but it helps you work through it and go, you know what, there are some things that I could have improved on. And that is healthy, and it's healing, and it is good. But it is spiritual death to walk away from that and go, it's only their fault, because you're wrong, because it's not just their fault. It takes two to realize when you're angry, it's a choice. I know you're like, what? No, I'm just angry. I just feel that way. No, but it is a choice. Blame, choice. And although in our current default setting, irresponsibility can also be a choice because sin makes it so that we don't even hear ourselves. Adam and Eve didn't even hear themselves anymore. They don't even hear what they're saying to this God that they had a perfect relationship with, that they were in harmony with the God that loved them with a universal, everlasting love, and they're saying to him, it's, it's your fault. You caused all this. Apart from God's grace, you and I don't even know what we don't know. And in our flesh, and we're born into the world apart from relationship with God, it is natural and it is easy to be rigorous in judging the sins of others and lenient in judging your own. Yeah? It's easy. Oh, it's easy to find fault in other people. It's actually kind of fun, isn't it? But the hard work is when you go, Lord, I'm ashamed, and I'm hiding. Why? I don't need to do that anymore. I want to throw off these chains, and I want to step into the light. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be rigorous in judging someone else's sin. I don't know their heart. Only God knows their heart. God sees the heart. We look at the externals. We judge the externals. God looks at the interior. He sees people as they really are. He sees their motives. I can't see that. You can't change anyone's mind acting like that. You can't love anyone to the kingdom acting like that. The godly man or woman that's led by the Spirit, a reborn, renewed Christian, you, God will usher you back into a place of responsibility. The good, empowering Spirit of God will lead you to a place where you are happy to be rigorous in judging your own sin and gracious in the sin of your brother or your sister. He will help you, but it starts with you. I've heard this a lot lately, and you have too, this platitude that's actually not in the Bible, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I think about that, and it goes back to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman where he does stand up for her, and he, they draw a line in the sand, they're going to kill her, and they're trying to trap Jesus in her act of adultery, which again, as I've said, the man in the act of adultery gets off the hook, which is not fair. But he's defending this woman, and essentially, long story short, Jesus writes in the sand, and we think he's writing the sins of the men holding stones in their hands, and they all walk away convicted of what they, their hypocrisy. And then he looks at the woman, and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone, my Lord. And he says, 
neither do I accuse you, go and leave your life of sin. And that's very true, that it's grace and truth simultaneously at work, right? He's embracing her, he's defending her, he's protecting her, he's loving her as only God can do, and he's also saying, I don't approve of what you've done, but I'm here with you now, and I'll always be with you, but leave, leave your life of sin. So people read that story and they go, hate the sin, love the sinner, but that phrase is not in the Bible, it's nowhere. A more biblical phrase could be, hate my sin, love the sinner. Amen? Hate my sin, love the sinner. I was uh, getting a haircut one time, and uh, as it goes with, in salons, you know, there's a lot of ladies talking, a lot of gossip. For some reason, I like women to cut my hair. I don't know why. I just think men are just like, they just buzz things off, and I don't know. So uh, she's cutting my hair, and they're kind of talking away, you know, and this, she's like, you know, my, my husband, he's the worst. He just gets on my nerves. And, and I heard her just going on and on. She's just blaming this guy. You know, like, maybe he's guilty. I don't know. But she just keeps going on and on. And it's kind of bothering me. And I say to her, you know, I don't know your husband. Maybe he's a real piece of crap. I don't know. But do you realize that your words are not helping your marriage? Do you realize that when you're blaming him behind his back, by the way, you are tearing down the one institution that apparently means the most to you? Don't you see the hypocrisy of what you're doing? I know it feels good to do that with your girlfriends, but you're actually making the problem worse instead of going directly to him. I encourage us all this week to think about our blame language, how we think about uh, addressing other people, your families, your wives, your spouses, people you work with, whatever. Think about that. Pray about it. Ask God to help Bring that to light, because I think this is a key aspect of what it means to be a responsible Christian, is to be wise with our words, because our words have such power, don't they? They can build up or tear down. I mean, you don't remember stuff that happened 30 years ago at school, but you remember what someone said to you, don't you? It's power in words. James says the tongue is like a a tongue of fire. It can build up or it can tear down in a heartbeat, right? You don't remember what people did to you, but you remember how, the, how they made you feel. So let's think about our blame language this week. And think about how we, what are we speaking into the lives of others. And parents, I felt convicted about this this week. Be in prayer for your family. Intercede for your children. Be in prayer for, your each, for one another. Because it's really hard to hate people that you pray for, isn't it? It's really hard to blame people that you're praying for. God is softening your heart, right, when you're praying for for other people in your life. So I encourage you to do that. And you know what, my friends? God will bless us in this work of all this stuff I'm saying. Isn't it amazing that we we, we fell from grace? We were out of the garden. All these things we talked about, but God hasn't left us alone, has he? Has he? He hasn't abandoned us. He made a way. He'll bless us in this life to bring us back to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that indeed you bless us. You bless us abundantly, even as we're sinners, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Yes, we all deserve the penalty of death and judgment, but it's by your grace poured out through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can have eternal life, that you you will remake us into that original image of God that you imprinted us with at the very beginning. You'll restore us. God, I don't know anybody in this world that's not hungering for restoration. That's not hungering for to be a more responsible person. 
Thank you, God, that you come alongside us and empower us with your good, empowering Holy Spirit. Let us receive this blessing you have for us today with an open hand to see, God, that you're better than our wildest dreams. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.